Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 116. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, thank you once again for bringing us together. We especially uh, want to thank you, Lord, for continuing to raise us up and to protect us during these difficult times. Um, our prayers are constantly um, coming in the form of Lord uh, uh, save us, Lord, protect us, Lord, um, keep us safe, uh, Lord, uh, keep us healthy, um, keep us focused on you. And uh, it's no wonder, considering the state of affairs, not just in America, but around the world. Uh, and yet, at the same time, Lord, we have to constantly remind ourselves that you are in control and that uh, this pandemic has not taken you by surprise. And therefore, we've got to continually press into the Spirit. We've got to veil ourselves of the words that you've given to us. We've got to stay focused. We've got to stay, what we say in charismatic circles, prayed up, um, so that we can be in a place where we can hear your voice, so that we can respond to, to your leading and your guiding and know that you're providing for us in the midst of these difficult times. And yet we still continue to face um, political uncertainty. We continue to face uh, a racial uh, tension and uh, uh, social injustices and, and all kinds of atrocities on the left and on the right. All the more reason for us to continue to press in and to know who our God is. We've got to have a voice in this day and age. We've got to have uh, moral sanity, as it were. We've got to be able to see things through the lens of the Spirit and through the lens of the Word, and so that we can uh, know that, that um, you're moving and leading and guiding. And we've got to be in a place where we're usable. For this reason, Lord, we continue to ask that you'll forgive us where we fall short, where we fail you, where we fail one another as community members, as families, as friends. Help us to um, forgive one another, to extend that mercy and kindness to each other. Uh, the patience wears thin during times like these. People can get angry, upset, stress can take over. Uh, we don't want to be people like that. We've got to be stronger than that. So give us um, hearts to continue to be obedient to you. Um, and that means to uh, walk in, in a place where we're humble and we're um, uh, uh, just uh, continuing to love one another. Thank you for this opportunity to share with the students. Each and every time I meet with people on the weekends and, and talk Torah and have Bible studies, Lord, I'm just blessed. I'm honored to be able to, to, to share the thoughts that you've placed on my heart during the week 
with the students that are joining me in the live class and with anyone who's going to be tuning in to this iTunes podcast or watching the YouTube video afterwards. Um, what an awesome responsibility. Lord, uh, uh, keep me um, well-informed. Uh, keep me in a place where I'm teachable, um, where I can hear your voice, uh, where I can continue to, to press in and to, uh, to know your will and to do your will. Um, thank you for each and every student that joined with me. Bless them, protect them, raise them up, and help us to be witnesses for your mighty name. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. I would just want to stop and thank everyone that's joining me week after week, uh, and especially those who are joining me in the live class um, during these live studies. It's, it's, I'm in a place where I can't traveled with and be with my family, um, at least not the, the family I was raised with. Uh, during holiday seasons. I know Thanksgiving's coming up. And by the time you're watching this YouTube video, Thanksgiving will already have been behind us uh, this week. But uh, many people in America and other places that are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving are contemplating how do we get together during this pandemic? You know, how do we stay socially distanced and quarantined and, 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 you know, keep wearing masks. You can't wear masks all the time, right? You got to eat. <laughs> you got to put food in your mouth. So um, these are just difficult times. So my heart goes out to those of you who are who are suddenly in a place where it's almost like you're like me. You're away from family and you're so close yet so far. And that's what phones are for and that's what internet's for and that's what email's for. So reach out, stay connected at least in some way, shape or fashion, right? Even if you can't meet or you're choosing not to meet um, in, in person, uh, uh, you, you're, you're just... Um, you're aching to, 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 to hug one another, uh, you know, but the state says, no, uh, 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 can't, can't get together. You know, only so many people in a room, you know, got to be six feet apart or whatever the, the distance is. So, um, but, you know, we're, we're a people of compassion. And so um, it's, it's tough. It's difficult. My heart goes out to you. Um, so let's just continue to pray for one another and lift one another up and to reach out to each other, even if you can't. Um, um, uh, see each other in person, you know, use Zoom, use Skype, use uh, uh, FaceTime, use whatever, if you can see their face, things like that, that works. Use email, uh, use good old-fashioned telephone, you know, that works too. <laughs> so uh, just continue to, to connect to one another. That's just my um, my recommendation. Being out here in Korea, it's, it's tough living out here. Now it's going on like, it's been, it's more than seven years that I've been out here. And so I, I haven't seen my family in, in a long time. I, I don't have the money to go back to the States whenever I'd like to. So um, I know what it's like to, to be away from family for an extended period of time as well. So my heart goes out to you. This is Live Internet Studies and uh, we meet each Saturday night from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're looking at your screen right now, those of you with me in live class and see my screen, this is episode number 116, and the meeting date for um, today's recording is November 21st, 2020. I know it's the um, 22nd, actually, where I'm at, but it's 21st for the recording. And we have an hour-long study that we get together with one another. Um, for 30 minutes, we talk about Romans 14 study that I've uh, been, that I put together, and we're in part 35 tonight. And for segment two, for 30 minutes or so, we are talking about uh, Trinity-type issues, discussions on the issues of Trinity, a Shema study that I put together. Um, and we're in part 52 tonight. And we're going to watch a YouTube video as well, maybe even two. We'll Depends on how I feel. Uh, this one, since we're on this topic of Sabbath, this uh, video is a little longer. It's called, What Day is the Sabbath? And Do Christians Have to Observe the Sabbath Day? And as I always mentioned, uh, I have a live congregation at, called uh, Kehilat 
Tunuva, which roughly translates from the Hebrew back into English as the harvest. And uh, you can see on my screen, uh, I've got graftedin.com pulled up. That's our congregational home webpage. We are practicing the stay-at-home orders based on the state guidelines for right now, the governmental orders. Um, so we are meeting virtually like most people are. So if you have an opportunity to visit our uh, YouTube channel and watch our um, streaming services, that's what we're going to have to recommend for now. I also have a YouTube channel. Let me go ahead and plug it right now at um, youtube.com forward slash C for channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. I can see on the screen right now. And from the homepage, you can click on um, the popular uploads. You can follow the live internet studies right there, the exploring the Shema discussions, what's on Paul's mind, one of my favorite studies, minute or two of the word, short little inspirational type, uh, average five minute type studies, Hebrews Unplugged study, uh, Shomer Mitzvot Torah Observance series, a little longer type studies. The Holy Convocations Feasts of the Lord, Mikra Kodesh, and then other playlists include um, a portion of the portion, highlights from my Torah portions. Those are like short to uh, average five minutes. Um, and then I've got uh, commentaries on every Torah portion of the five books of Moses that you can follow along with, with those as well. So lots to offer. I want to thank you. Last week I was stuck on 666 views right there for a little while, and that was a little spooky, but some people jumped in and helped me out and bumped that John 1 1 video up to 681 views. No longer do you see the 666. I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, while you're at my um, YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe. See the little red button there? Subscribe so that you can be notified. I think the notifications only go to your mobile device or your um, iPad or, or tablet device. They don't, they're not, they don't go to your email anymore. But that'll help you stay notified when I upload videos. And better yet, hit the little bell for notifications. That may that way you're going to receive all the notifications whenever I'm uploading new content, which I do nearly every day or every other day or multiple times a week. Uh, thirdly, I want to uh, recommend that you like what you see. Hit the little thumbs up button because obviously you're going to like what I'm producing, right? No, seriously. Um, if you don't like what I'm producing, then hit the thumbs down. But leave me a comment. Tell me why you didn't like it. And then lastly, um, uh, hit the little share button. When you're, when you're watching a video, there's a little option to hit a little, looks like a little arrow pointing off to the um, right side. Um, hit that little share button and share it with your friends and family and things like that. That's kind of nice. All right. Um, I think we're done with the announcements. Let's turn to the liturgy for tonight. I didn't mention anything about Skype or anything like that. I think you guys are probably already aware, those of you who are watching the Skype with me through Skype. I don't get a lot of people that join via Skype, but if you do want to join us live, um, get Skype on your computer and then get the Skype group link. Go to my website at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. Go to Tetze Torah. Scroll to the very bottom of my website. Click on the little button that looks like an envelope, send me an email, tell me you'd like to join the Skype classes, I'll be more than happy to send you the Skype link, okay? And since I'm down here at this part of the screen, I always mention, if you'd like to help me out, keep my ministry afloat, keep me in a position where I can continue bringing these teachings to you, because if I can't stay in my apartment, if I can't eat, if I can't pay the rent and things like that, then I can't bring you these commentaries. So your gifts and contributions can help to keep me afloat during this difficult time for me. So feel free to use a little yellow donate button right there. It'll send securely via PayPal and I'll receive the funds that way. And I just want to thank everyone for blessing me and sacrificially giving during these times um, 
blessing me as the Lord is blessing you is like is what I like to say. All right, let's turn to the uh, liturgy for tonight. Um, we're going to use a, a Sabbath passage this time out of the prophets, a premier prophet Isaiah, chapter fifty-six, and we're going to read. Oh, I think I'm going to read probably a good chunk, eight verses. This is a passage where the prophet is is foreseeing a future time when not just Israel, but those who were not um, socially part of Israel, people from outside groups and people even the disenfranchised within Israel, but people from a position who didn't consider themselves covenantally bound to Israel were joining Israel's lot via faith in God and um, joining their lot with Israel and becoming a part of the covenant people. And so the paradigm is being uh, pictured that covenant membership entails certain benefits. And one of the benefits is that you can begin to... Um, uh, you you can begin to uh, 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 make uh, use of the um, uh, the commandments. You can avail yourselves of the covenant covenant, not just privileges but ultimately responsibilities. So that's what we're going to be reading here in Isaiah 56. Here in Isaiah, let's just read down through the verses. This is a great passage to let us know that. The Sabbath during the time of Isaiah's writing was obviously enforced in Israel. It was in effect. Even though we live in a time period now in the in what we might call the, the Christian era or the New Testament era, where it's questionable to whether Sabbath st is still recognized by God or not, or whether it's still enforceable among God's people. Shouldn't really be any question, but uh, unfortunately it is. But regardless of whether you think Sabbath is still uh, regulated for God's people today or not as a New Testament Christian, you can't really argue with the fact that Isaiah is forecasting a time in the future for him when other peoples will be joining and keeping the Sabbath and things like that. And so he's basically letting, uh, I think the passage is self-explanatory, but he's letting the people know um, God wants all of his people that are joining themselves to him to um, be blessed by keeping his commandments. So let's just read the passage. Isaiah 56, we're going to be reading the ESV version like I'm normally doing. ESV on the left side of the screen, uh, Hebrew Study Bible on the right side of the screen, which is the uh, Masoretic Hebrew. All right, so let's start right there. All right, verse one says, "Thus saith the thus says the Lord." I'm still re used to reading KJV. Saith, sorry about. That. Let's try that again. Thus says the Lord, uh, "Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed." Verse two, "Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast." What is this thing? Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And we're going to find out a little later on, as we, once I read the Hebrew, that the primary thing that uh, uh, takes, that propels us into covenant membership and covenant obedience, first and foremost, is not just doing something that God asks you to do, but it's primarily first internalizing the prioritizing of the fact that the commandments are mine to keep and that, that I have a this duty and responsibility. You could say I have a divine invitation to keep that, but I think it's much stronger than that. So, and this starts from this Hebrew word, um, shamar or shomer, which is right there in the Hebrew. We see it right there. Shomer Shabbat. I mean, you're eventually going to do measot right there. Keep your hand from doing any evil, right? But the idea is that it's, uh, 
commandment keeping starts with Shomer. We'll talk about that a little later on. Let's go to verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined... I'm sorry. Did I read verse 2? I'll read it again in case I didn't. Blessed is man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing an evil. And we're going to look at the word keeps is actually the word do there, the word keeps right there. Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. As if these types of peoples wouldn't be allowed to keep um, Sabbath or anything like that. God is saying through the mouth of the prophet here, don't worry. If you are a eunuch or you're a foreigner who's joined yourself to the Lord, then your faith in me has brought you into covenant proximity to my words, my ways, my spirit, my blessing. And therefore, by joining yourself in faith to me, I'm filling in for God's part. By joining yourself to me, you are uh, bringing yourself within covenant responsibility and covenant privileges and thus covenant blessing. In a word, to speak plainly, the Torah is for you as well. The Torah is for covenant members. And doesn't matter if you're a foreigner or a eunuch. You're in covenant with me, then my covenant extends to you. And so does my blessing and my protection. All right, let's keep reading. Verse uh, 4 says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. Notice that the, the the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. That's what I talked about in weeks past. Is this whole idea of covenant responsibility or covenant loyalty uh, that's um, that's spoken about in the Torah over and over and over and over again is something that unfortunately has been lost to many in modern Gentile Christianity. We've not, we've not, unfortunately, as Gentile Christians, as the, as the Gentile church largely, I'm not saying this across the board, but for the most part, we have abandoned this concept of covenant loyalty. That didn't carry over when we, um, uh, when, when we as Gentile Christians were brought into this uh, family relationship with Israel. Unfortunately, this idea of covenant loyalty was, was left at the door, and it should not have been. But, but here it is right here in our face. Hold fast to my covenant. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's covenant um, uh, covenant language there. God saying, you are mine, sons and daughters, right? This is family language is what the point I'm trying to talk about. So God brings you in by faith. You're not brought in by your obedience, but your obedience is a demonstration from your part that you are a family member and your loyalty to the covenant um, uh, shows that, demonstrates that to not just the father, the one who's making the rules, but also to the other family members and lastly to yourself that, yes, I am a covenant member and these, these rules and responsibilities are mine. These are privileges that I enjoy. Think of it like members only club, right? These, these are the, the privileges that members uh, uh, enjoy. Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, right? There's that covenant uh, uh, terminology again, that family language, joining themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath, and again, that word keep there is Shomer, and we'll look at that in a bit, and who does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Notice the, the, the interweaving of keeping the Sabbath and holding fast my covenant. They are overlapped for a reason. They're interwoven for a reason. It's because keeping covenant is keeping Sabbath, and keeping Sabbath is keeping covenant. They, 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 they're intertwined. You can't separate them. 
Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And then we have Yeshua's famous quote, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for Jews only. Oh no, that's not what it says. I don't know what version Bible you might be reading, but it certainly doesn't say my house shall be called a house of prayer for Israel only or for Jews only. I'm using the word Israel and Jewish synonymy there for a reason. No, it says my house shall be held a house of prayer for all peoples. And of course, we know Solomon mentioned that as well. So here's the point as I get ready for verse 8, is that God is making himself accessible to anyone who would join themselves to the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord. Ultimately, we see this culminating in the calling upon the name of Yeshua for salvation, being brought into the family of God, both Jew and Gentile alike, no matter what ethnicity you stem from. Uh, God is your God. Yeshua can be your Messiah. And along with that, the covenant is yours, and thus the commandments can be yours as well. The Torah is not a Jewish-only document. All right, verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So we got Israel, and then we have others gathered to Israel besides those who are already gathered. Perhaps this is a prophetic passage speaking of the Gentiles who are going to be brought into Israel in mass and joining the covenant members so that they're all seen as covenant members, one giant family, right? Um, both seeing Papa Abraham as our father. Go back and read Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 all over again. This is really good stuff. I hope you're going to go back and read some of these verses on your own and meditate on the truths of these passages. I'm trying not to turn my liturgy into a sermon, but I can't resist sometimes. Okay, let's go back up and read the Hebrew. And I'll try not to belabor the point. Uh, we're going to read the Masoretic Hebrew over on the right side of the screen right here for you. Uh, remember, Hebrew reads right to left, so starting right there and going this way. For those of you who are following along with me in the live class, this is the way that Hebrew is going to be reading, right? Okay. Uh, starting in verse 1, the Hebrew says, Ko amar Adonai shimru mishpat va'asu tzedakah Ki krova Yeshua ti lavo vetsidkati lahigalot. Verse two, Ashrei enosh, you know, happy is the man, blessed is the man. Ashrei enosh yaase zot uven uven adam yachazik ba shomer shabbat shomer shabbat. This phrase right here, who keeps the Sabbath. That's what the Shomer Shabbat means. But as I mentioned, this word Shomer, right, this root, this verb here, um, we translate it as keep, but the primary meaning found throughout the Bible is not necessary to keep as in do it, like observe it, but it, it's primarily rooted firstly in actually safeguarding. So it's it's describing a state of mind. It's describing a conscious decision on the part of the person who's left with this choice. It's describing an internal decision. So uh, we could say it starts with a feeling or it starts with the heart, it starts with the head. It doesn't start with the hands of the doing, like where you're actually like implementing something by way of actions that other people can observe. So it's something that's really invisible. It's an internal choice that you make on your part. Like you, you make something precious. You look at something and you internalize it as being precious and worth um, 
being precious and, and safeguarding and, and um, uh, something that should be guarded. So that's the idea is that God's trying to let us know, hey, you can start internally with your choice, with your heart choice, with your head choice. Uh, the Sabbath is something that I'm going to um, consider as precious. And this is something that everybody who names the name of Yeshua as Messiah can do. Even if you're not in a position where you can do the Sabbath, you can at least internalize the the, the, the aspect that the Sabbath is precious. This is a challenge for the church uh, who has largely uh, chosen to internalize the idea that the Sabbath is not really important. Change your mind. All right, let's, so let's keep reading. Um, uh, so, Shomer Shabbat mechalo v'shomer yado me'asot kolra. Uh, someone who does keeps his hand from doing asa, from doing evil. So there, it's it's something you actually have to implement so that people can see it. Verse three says, "Vai al yomar ben hanechar hanilva el Adonai lemor have I'm sorry havdel yavdilani Adonai me al amo va al yomar ha saris hinani et yavish." Verse four. Verse 4 says, Ki ko amar Adonai, right, thus says the Lord. Lo um, sarisim, to the eunuchs, lo sarisim asher yishmuru et hashabat. Again, those who keep my Sabbaths, and the um, uh, the verb here, yishmuru, is the same as we saw before, shamar. It's the the um, uh, keeping, that is to say, firstly internalizing. It does finally work its way out in actually doing it, but it starts with internalizing. So um, that's why he, he says it right there. Yishmeru et ha-shabtotai uv haru ba-asher chafatsi uma chazikim bivriti, my whole covenant. Verse 5, v'natati lachem b'veti uv chomotai yad v'ashem tov Mi banim u mi banot, sons and daughters, shame olam, a name that is everlasting, a shame olam, eten lo asher lo yikaret, that cannot be cut off. Verse 6, uvne ha nechar, ha nilvim al Adonai. Right now he's going to start talking to the foreigners. And it's interesting in verse 6, this word for foreigner is not the normal word for foreigner, like ger, which would kind of be a, a kind of a, a non-hostile foreigner, at least from the context of the way it's used in the in the Bible, it's it uh, um, the normal word for a foreigner, which is ger, just someone who maybe might even be a um, a visitor, uh, might maybe even a um, uh, uh, what you might call someone who's just traversing through the land, decides to stop and stay in Israel for a little while. But this is a different word, right? Uh, a nehar is often used to to describe someone who was normally seen as a hostile against Israel. And so we're trying to say kind of like in hyperbole fashion that even those who would be considered Israel's enemies, even they can join themselves to the Lord. That's the the kind of the impact of what the uh, the prophet Isaiah is trying to say here. These, these foreigners who join their swords to the Lord. And love at shame the name of Adonai. Shabbat. They become Shomer Shabbat, right? Keeping of the Sabbath. Right? I'm sorry, I, I jumped a verse. Let's start over. I jumped from verse 6 to verse 7. 
Let's start in verse 6 again. Uvnei ha-nechar ha-nil vim al-Adonai l-sharto u-la-ahava et shem Adonai l-hiot lo la-avadim kol shomer shabbat mechalo u-ma-chazikim bivriti. Now we can jump to verse 7. Scroll up a bit there. Verse 7 says, Vaha viotim el har kadshi vasimachtim bevet tefilati olo tehim zilchehim l'ratzun al mizbechi ki veti bet tefila ikare lechol hamim. And then the final pasik, verse 8. Neum Adonai Adonai, the Lord God, right? We have a doubling of the uh, the name. The first uh, name, Adonai, and then the second one, Y-H-V-H, Adonai Yahweh, if you want to translate it that way. The Lord, Lord, or the Lord God. Neum Adonai Adonai, Mechabetz Nidche Yisrael, right? The outcast of Israel. Israel. Nidche Yisrael, Ud Akabetz Alive, Le Nik Batsaiv. And that'll do it for the liturgy from the Torah portion. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 14. Wow, my liturgy is going long tonight. I hope you guys are okay with that. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long. That's just the way it is. Romans 14, let's um, let's shorten this up a little bit since we spent so much time in the uh, Torah portion, the Torah section. Let's scroll, scroll down into Romans. I won't start in verse 1. Instead, I'll jump all the way down and start in verse 5. But I need to read 5, 6, 7, 8... And <clears throat> nine, we'll read those five verses uh, for our uh, apostolic scriptures. So start right here in Romans 14 uh, in the ESV right there on the side of the screen. It says, verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. Verse six says, the one who observes a day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, I'm sorry, verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And then verse 9 is where I'll stop tonight. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Let's go back and read the Greek starting in verse 5. Right there. The Greek says, Hasmin gar krine himeron par himeron has de krine pasan himeron hekastos into idio noi pleroforesto. Verse 6 says, Ha franon ten himeron curio frane, kai ha me franon ten himeron curio u frane, ha estion curio estie, euchariste. Gar totheo kai ha me estion, curio uk estie kai euchariste totheo. Verse 7 says, Udes gar himon hauto, ze kai udes hauto, apathneske. And verse 8 says, Ente gar zomen, to curio zomen, ente Apathneskomen to curio apathneskamen in te uk. I'm sorry, un zomen in te apathneskomen to curio curio esmen. And then the final verse, verse 9 says, Ace tuta gar Christas apethanen 
Kai Ezesin Hinakai Necron Kai Zoton Kuriuse. And that'll be the liturgy. Wow, and we're at 30 minutes into the study, and I've used it all up. We haven't even really started talking about the topics that we're going to talk about yet. We might end up doing a little bit longer show tonight. So those of you with me in the live class, we might end up going just a few minutes over. But for now, let's turn to the um, uh, the uh, uh, the video. Uh, the video is entitled, What Day is the Sabbath Day, Saturday or Sunday, and Do Christians Have to Observe the Sabbath? And I think it's a little longer video, maybe even 10 minutes long. So sit back, enjoy the video as it's narrated, and then if we need to talk about it later on, we will. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and E Bible. Copyright Tate Say Tor Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. All right, let's turn to our first Sabbath question tonight. Question What day is the Sabbath day? Saturday or Sunday? And do Christians have to observe the Sabbath day? So it's a two part question. All right. Let me read a verse to put us in the creation mindset. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. We read this in my liturgy, but I'll read it again for the video. Okay. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And the third verse, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. And of course, that's Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, as rendered out of the ESV, and we read that in our liturgy earlier. We're going to read those verses again a bit later in Hebrew, but for now, sit back and enjoy the creation-themed slideshow video. And uh, that's what it is. It's basically a slideshow, and it's themed off of... What is this guy? Did anyone bring some popcorn? Hey, get out of there, guy. <laughs> All right. All right, I, I want to answer the questions actually in reverse order of how they were asked, right? Actually, the reverse of how they were asked. So let's look at the questions here. Question, do Christians have to observe the Sabbath day? Answer, as covenant-bound believers in Yeshua Jesus and bona fide members in Israel, yes, the Torah applies to them. They should be observing the God-given Seventh-day Sabbath instead of, or, better yet, along with the man-made replacement called Sunday. Question, what day is the Sabbath, Saturday or Sunday? Uh, Answer, Sabbath is Saturday despite its age. If we are to take God's word as trustworthy in its original autograph, then we can be sure. What can we be sure about? We can be sure that the biblical Sabbath has been preserved as our modern Seventh-day Saturday based on at least 3,500 years of reliable records keeping. That's right, the Jewish people have been keeping these records for quite a long time. And based on an accurate historical grammatical understanding of the ancient Near Eastern tradition as a whole. In a word, you can trust the history of the Jews uh, that God entrusted us with. According to Old Testament Hebrew reckoning from time immemorial, and in keeping with ancient and Jewish practices, the days of the week are not named, but instead are merely numbered. 
the Sabbath day being the only exception. In other words, in, in, in Judaism, instead of having days of the week, we simply say day, uh, day one, day two, day three, etc. When no later than the second century, the Roman government decided to give days of the week names, surprisingly, our modern English-named Saturday survived as the only day that retains its original connection to ancient Roman mythology. The other days... Uh, modern names find their roots in Germanic polytheism. So that's true of many languages. Sabbath day still is related to the Hebrew word for Sabbath. God established the universal seven-day weekly cycle in Genesis chapter 1. The same God entrusted Moses with transmitting this information to greater Israel and eventually to her written Torah, which is the law of the first five books that we have. This same Torah was verified as accurate for 1,500 years of Jewish history until the time that Jesus Christ walked the earth. When he showed up 1,500 years later, he didn't seem to have to say, oh, you've got an inaccurate Torah. Within a few hundred years, the emerging Christian church picked up and continued this accurate transmission of truth right down to this very day. So are you following the logic so far of, of the accuracy? While not entirely accurate all the time, but nevertheless helpful, Wikipedia has this to say about the weekdays as being numbered from Saturday. Here's what Wikipedia has to say. Quote, For the majority of the Abrahamic religions, the first day of the week is Sunday, biblical Sabbath originally corresponding to Saturday. When God rested from six-day creation, made the day following Sabbath, the first day of the week, corresponding to Sunday. Seventh-day Sabbaths were sanctified for celebration and for rest. Wikipedia continues, After the week was adopted in early Christian Europe, Sunday remained the first day of the week, but also gradually displaced Saturday as a day of celebration and rest, being considered the Lord's Day. The change of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday has no biblical foundations. All right, um... An additional article from Wikipedia on Saturday has this on record, quote, In Jewish law, Saturday is the seventh day of the week, called Shabbat. Thus, in many languages, the Saturday is named after the Sabbath. And you'll find that if you look that up in many languages. Roman, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches distinguish between Saturday, Sabbath, and the Lord's Day, Sunday. Some Protestants call Sunday the Sabbath. See Sabbath in Christianity from their article there. And then they conclude, I think, by saying Quakers traditionally refer the Sabbath or Saturday as seventh day, eschewing or uh, avoiding the pagan origin of the name. In Islamic countries, Fridays are holidays, but they are considered as the sixth day of the week. So basically, we've got a lot of um, agreement on which days are. So what are our conclusions? Let me read that verse in Hebrew for us again. And we read that in the liturgy, and those of you who follow along with my um, YouTube channel didn't catch the liturgy. It's it's exclusive to the uh, the audio version of iTunes, but this is the verse that I read. is about how thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work <clears throat> that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. That's uh, Genesis 2, 1 and 2. And there was one more verse here that I want to tag along to that, which is verse 3, uh, which reads, 
Um, I guess I didn't include it on my slide. Sorry about that. Despite the obvious religious differences between Judaism and Christianity, both institutions do in fact agree that the Old Testament scriptures are reliable, they're accurate, and trustworthy in their original autographs, and this includes the Seventh-day Sabbath identity. So basically, between Judaism, Christianity, and we can even throw in Islam there, all of us agree which day is Seventh-day Sabbath. Amen? Amen. My podcasts are available on iTunes. Search for me under the name Ariel Hanavi. And uh, for those of you who prefer watching your teachings, well then uh, catch me out on YouTube. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, and I promise you that I upload content, new content, every week. In fact, it's multiple times a week that you're going to find new content there, okay? All right. That'll do it for the uh, video for tonight. As always, if you'd like to um, watch more of my video content, head on over to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash C for channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. Make sure you click on the little videos tab and that'll allow you to see all of the different videos in the order that I upload them because the default sort is by um uh, the latest date. And so you can see the live internet studies episode number 115 that we just recorded last week has been upvoted just a few hours ago. It's available now. And then all the other uh, videos that are in, in uh, the order that I uploaded them, you can view them by thumbnail and go from there. Okay. All right. It is about 40 minutes into the uh, study right now. Let's now begin to work our way through the two segments. We've got about 20 minutes left technically in the hour-long study. Um, we spent most of our time in the liturgy tonight. Sometimes we spend more time in one place than the other, so I, go, I hope you guys are okay with that. Um, let's turn now to uh, Romans 14. The study is entitled Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my. We're actually going to finish the conclusion, right? We're going to look at the conclusions. So if you look at my screen right now, we've been talking in Romans 14. Remember, there's a section there where Paul says one person esteems one day, one person esteems another day, everybody should be fully convinced, one person observes a day, and things like that. You guys remember from the liturgy, Romans 14 verses 5 and 6. That's the topic. And so what we've ascertained is that historically, um, generally speaking, um, the popular translations and interpretations of this section of our Bible lead us to a conclusion that Paul is is basically abrogating Torah observance, which would include Sabbath, Seventh-day Sabbath, and he's really allowing for the churches that he's establishing, the largely Gentile Christian churches, to formulate whatever holy days they would like based on a kind of a, a maybe a, a popular vote or a personal opinion. And what we found is that historically, contextually, and theologically, it's probably not the safest way to interpret these passages. I'm not uh, dis discounting the fact that there is some application where um, certain ways and bylaws and, and meeting times that where we get together as, as Christ Christians that Paul certainly wouldn't want us to take votes and make sure that we're all on, on board with whatever leadership deems uh, which days are important. The point I'm simply trying to make is that it is highly unlikely that Paul is using the Sabbath as this test case or that he's 
that he's directly applying this part of his letter to the 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 uh, holy days that were all established by Moshe 1500 years earlier. And um, so that's that's the premise that we're going with. So let's just read through my conclusions, and this will begin. To, you'll begin to see what I'm talking about. We're going to finish this tonight, by the way, so that next week we're poised to begin asking this question, start turning to this topic: Who is the brother of Romans 14, uh, specifically the section 10 through 13, and why it matters to us is because if the brother are Christians, then perhaps maybe there's no need for us to even concern, concern ourselves with uh, non-Messianic Jews who might we might encounter in our travels, per se. But if in Paul's day, non-Christian Jews were actually still part of the larger faith community, then the term brother is broadened. And it takes on a slightly different nuance than we're used to hearing when we think of the word brothers. So we'll, we'll begin to look at that next week, but don't want to jump ahead just too quickly. For now, let's start with our conclusions again. This is a conclusion to the section on uh, the topic about um, Sabbath versus Sunday. Is Paul talking about a um, Sabbath uh, issue when he's talking about these special days? So here's what my commentary has to say. Quote, there's no historical evidence or theological support from the first century to suppose that Romans 14.5 should be interpreted as a freedom to choose worship days. There just really isn't anything from history that lends this particular support. In other words, it seems to fit our modern um, proclivities as Gentile Christians to feel that we're free from any vestiges of, of Torah observance or anything that smacks of Judaism or or something that would obligate us to what we term Old Testament or or Old Dispensation or something. We feel like if we're keeping the law, then we feel like we're going backwards, not forward. We're not being progressive as Christians. Uh, we're, we're going back under the law, which is somehow equated with under legalism or under bondage, as if keeping God's laws is, is legalism or something to that effect. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any historical evidence or theological support, as I mentioned, that this is what Paul is talking about. The early, I continued, the early Messianic communities were, if you remember, a sect of Judaism, right? A breakoff, an offshoot of Judaism. Read Acts 24, 14. They called themselves uh, followers of the way, which was a sect of Judaism. They weren't a brand new religion known as Christianity is the point I'm trying to make. They they eventually did get labeled as Christians, at least maybe two or three times in the apostolic scriptures. Um, but the point is, even Rome would have forbade uh, new religions from starting up under the emperor's premise that um, the emperors themselves were demigods or gods to be worshipped. And uh, bringing in another religion that was not sanctioned or recognized by Rome would have been uh, tantamount to some form of treason against the emperor, right? You're bringing in another god, you're worshipping him, and what you know? What about emperor worship? What about recognizing emperor's worship? The, the only group at the time of Paul's writing that enjoyed a um, an ex, uh, um, what we might call um, uh, they were excluded from having to uh, in other words from having to to, to uh, do emperor worship they had a a, a a kind of an allowance as it were the, the Greek word is a, a collegia they were um, it was the Judaisms the Judaisms they were allowed to uh, to have a, a measured amount of autonomy 
they could worship their own God, right? The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not have to worship the emperor's God, but they still had to pray for the emperor and pay a, a heavy amount of tax for that religious, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, freedom, that religious exemption. That's the word I was looking for. They had this religious exemption and it was, it was, it was levied against them in the form of the, uh, the, 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 the Viscus Judaicus. So all that to say simply, bringing in another new religion known as Christianity, you know, willy-nilly, wouldn't really have worked in Paul's day. You were either a part of Rome's religions, the pantheon of gods, or you were a part of Judaic religion, um, you know, the monotheistic um, uh, Jewish religion. There was no Islam. There was no uh, Catholic Christianity at the time. There wasn't any Orthodox Christianity. There was no um, uh, um uh, Mormonism or, or, or um, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses around. There was no uh, SDAs around at the time. Uh, none of that. There was no Protestantism at the time, right? There were still there were other world religions, you know, Buddhism and things like that. But there's different parts of the world. We're talking about the Middle East. So let's continue. Even a surface level examination of the chapter will show that food and eating topics were the primary context, right? Do this on your own. Go back and read Romans 14 verses 2, 3, 6, 14. 15, 17, 20, 21, and 23, just to name a few of them, right? The context is about food. Why would he certainly suddenly switch to Sabbath days? Doesn't make any sense. All right, so based on the context being food, a special day that's tied to food would make it what? Let's keep reading. This would make Romans 14, 5 and 6 about voluntary fast days, right? That has to do with food that some were esteeming while others not obligating themselves to those voluntary fast days. And why not? There's nothing in the Torah that mandates a fast day other than perhaps Yom Kippur as a mandatory um, community fast day. But other than that, there weren't any mandatory biblically commanded fast days, and thus each community could determine which days were fast days, and each individual member within a community could also say, I have my own special fast day for X amount of reasons. And thus, there wasn't an opportunity for anyone, either community versus community, or individual versus individual within a community, to levy any judgment against each other over something that is not mandatory in the Torah to begin with. You understand the logic behind making this about voluntary fast days instead of making it about something like the Sabbath, which was obviously um, community mandated by God himself. It was a command from the top, right? These orders came from the top down. It wasn't Moshe's invention to bring the Sabbath into the picture. It was God's instruction. Here, God says to Moshe, these are my special days. Sabbath is just one of them. The festivals would be the others. These are my special days. You disseminate this information to the people, to the leaders, and make sure that this information goes to, into the community and that they implement these, put them into practice, safeguard them, right? Remember, I talked about the word Shomer in the liturgy. Safeguard them internally first and then implement them as a community. Make sure you're actually walking them out on the outside. You have to actually do them. Set your calendar so that you're actually walking into them and doing them. This is not something that was voluntary. It was not put up for a vote. It was not something that each person was supposed to be, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers for those who can't see me. It was not some, something that was supposed to be left for each one to be fully convinced in his own mind. That was not the case when it comes to Sabbath. The idea is that the children of Israel in many ways were like an employer-employee relationship, and God was making the rules and the uh, 
as employer and Israel being the employee would have to follow those rules because they were covenantally bound, uh, contractually bound to keep those particular rules. And part of it was like that relationship. We could also make a relationship like children are to parents. The parents don't say to the children, Johnny, who's 10 years old or maybe five years old, doesn't matter, somewhere around that age, right? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Johnny, do you want to clean your room today? Are you fully convinced that you should be cleaning your room today? Or would you rather go out and play? You and your sister, um, Sarah, who's also just a few years older or younger than you, you, you guys discuss it amongst yourselves and come to a decision whether you want to clean your room or you want to go out and play with your friends. And whatever decision you guys come to, just be fully convinced about it and I'll let you guys – I'll go with that. Is that what mom and dad say? It doesn't work that way. Is it because their relationship is not employer-employee? No, it doesn't work that way either. It's because parent to children, we already know that the instructions go from parent to down the child and the children don't have a choice in the matter. They are to receive the instruction from their parents. There's also that aspect of Israel to God. They are the children and God is the parent. But keep in mind that also we're talking about a different metaphor of employer to employee. So a lot of that, there's contractual obligations, but there's also just the respect from parent down to children. So let's keep this in context. Let's keep reading. Let me scroll up a little bit here. Starting right here, I say, and within the sometimes heated social setting of the first century Judaisms, issues related to food, special days, and ritual purity were a natural flashpoint for friction between the merging of the Jewish culture and those from the nations who were grafted into remnant Israel. Read Romans 11, 17, and 15, 5 through 7. So we have Gentiles and Jews being thrust together in a mix where we've got to work this thing out together as fellow covenant members. Now, we've got our differences historically. We've got our differences culturally. We've got, we've got our differences religiously. And yet, because we're all named in the one God, the God of Israel, and some of us naming the name of Messiah, others not, yet still we're all one covenant family. Gentiles are brought into the family via their faith in Messiah, but this brings them into the family relationship with Abraham as their father, even though they're Gentiles, and it brings them into relationship with God as their maker, their creator, their savior. Understand what I'm talking about? Jews were already enjoying this covenant membership under God through faith in God as walked out through covenant faithfulness and loyalty to Torah. But along come Gentiles who bring in also their faith in God, along with their faith in Messiah. Their faith, the point I'm trying to emphasize is that their faith in Messiah did not separate them and make them a separate group so that they did not have to obligate themselves to the same faith in God, loyalty to Torah, and recognition that the Jewish people were their co-covenant partners in this franchise together as worshipers of the one God of Israel. It was one God. So that's the point I'm trying to make. Let's uh, read these last few paragraphs. Let me scroll up a bit. Right here, I read, or I, I have to say, in this day and age, believers are free to worship on whatever day the rule code is the Holy Spirit leads them to worship on. Don't get me wrong. You can worship wherever the Spirit leads you. However, here's my proviso, it would be wise at least to establish a regular schedule pattern and location of worship so that one could become accountable to a local congregation if at all possible. We don't want Johnny, uh, uh, what do we call, um, 
uh, uh, Lone Rangers just creating any type of worship schedule with no accountability to anyone and no cohesion, no group affiliation. Uh, you're you're going to put yourself in danger if you're just going to go out there on your own and say, I'm not going to group with anybody. I'm going to, I'm not going to meet in a group. I'm not going to meet with people. I'm just going to worship God whenever the spirit leads me today. It might be Monday. Tomorrow, it might be Friday. You know, the next day it might be Wednesday. It's just a coin toss, a flip of the dice, right? No one knows which day is my worship day. It's whatever I feel led in the spirit to worship on. And if you do that, you're not really going to be in a position where you're not going to have your, you're not going to be able to fellowship with anybody because you're not going to find any other church denominations that follow that same type of theology that you're following. That's the point I'm trying to make. So I keep, I, I continue. Um, biblical freedom is not a license to church hop as often as one pleases. To this degree, there may be no right, rigid right or wrong answer to this particular question. Uh, I go on to say. I don't personally agree with using Romans 14.5 to justify a choice of, in worship days since I believe the context to be that of voluntary fast days instead. All right, and then this last paragraph, which will close out this section, I have to say, lastly, regardless of how one interprets Romans 14.5, we can be assured that Paul forbids the weak and the strong from judging and despising each other since they constitute one viable community and are in need of one another. Read Romans 14.1-4, 10, and 13. Also. Paul definitely admonishes the strong to welcome, that is Romans 14.1, and bear with the failings of the weak and to accommodate their opinions, Romans 15.1. We'll talk a little bit more about who the weak are and who is your brother next week. But in closing, I say um, we're, we're to admonish one another. The strong have the most of the responsibility to welcome and to bear with, right? Most of the letter is actually, this part of the letter is aimed at the strong since they're the ones who are spirit-led and the ones who are naturally going to um, uh, be expected to carry that particular responsibility. The weak typically aren't going to be that way. While each other is to, while each is to build the other up, Romans 15, 2 and 7, and to avoid destroying the work of God for the sake of food, Romans 14, 2. So in the end, while we're going to have our differences over which days are special and which days aren't, whether we're talking about Sabbath versus Sunday, which I think isn't really the issue, or whether we're talking about fast days versus non-fast days, right? Whatever uh, way we slice and dice this particular chapter of Paul, we're going to have to come to agreement on the fact that in the end, we need to welcome one another, bear with each other's failings and and differences, accommodate each other's opinions, and uh, build each other up in Messiah and avoid destroying one another for petty differences uh, that are certainly not spelled out as black and white in the Torah. Omain, Omain. Okay, that'll do it for the Romans 14 study uh, for tonight. Next week, we'll begin to look at this question, uh, who is the brother in this particular passage? And we're going to entertain the challenging question as to whether or not the brother is exclusively Christian, right, Jews and Gentiles, or could it be that Paul's actually allowing for this word brother to have a broader meaning to include Jews and Gentiles as brother covenant members, even though some of those covenant members are only on one level of covenant obedience, that is to say they have a faith in God, but the other person has the um, uh, the extended level of covenant, covenant uh, membership, meaning they have faith in Messiah, yet both are still brothers because the commonality between the two is that they both have a faith in God. Could this be um, uh, seen and allowable in this phrase, brother? We'll look at that next week. All right, let's close that tab. We don't need that. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, 
And this is going to occupy the last five or ten minutes of our study. As I mentioned, we're going just a little bit over for those of you with me in live class. Once again, we're looking at this chart that Karm put together, uh, Christian uh, Apologetics and Research Ministry. And we've got a table and columns and um, rows. And basically, we've got a, a um, kind of a logical process where we're following this idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can be seen as one being known as God, yet with their separate personalities based on different passages that are presented before us that uh, um, detail sometimes a title, sometimes a name, sometimes an attribute, sometimes an action or something to that effect that, that we can witness. And so the scriptures, when taken together as a whole, lead us to this conclusion. This isn't the only way to interpret your Bible so that you can walk away with what we're describing as the Orthodox Trinitarian position. Um, but this helps us to avoid cherry-picking verses where we have uh, people say, well, I don't believe that Jesus is God because, and they pull out one verse without actually um, uh, corroborating that one verse over and against not just the immediate surrounding context of the other verses in that passage, but the overall context of either the book, the writer, or the genre, or the Bible as a whole. And so what, we're, what we really need to do, I'm going to say this over and over again, the best hermeneutics practice is to take the Bible as a whole and put as much data on the table. You've got to be scientific about this. Put as much information in front of you as, as possible so that you can get the comprehensive perspective. So having done that, what we're going to be looking at tonight is how the Holy Spirit is actually called God in Acts 5, 3, and 4. And we'll probably only spend just this one week on the Holy Spirit, and then we'll turn next week and start with the Father again as Creator and turn to Isaiah, and, and then go to the Son as Creator, and then go to the Holy Spirit as Creator, and, and keep going that way. So we'll just go Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and read the verses. And then we'll go Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and read the verses. You know, read the title or attribute, and then read the verses that correspond. That's the, the way we're going to go about this. So, Holy Spirit is called God. This is the, one of the most famous passages where the Holy Spirit is called God. There are other passages that give this um, illustration, but um, uh, this is one of the first uh, easiest ones to look at. So let's look at Acts chapter 5 and scroll down to start in verse um, uh, 4. This is Peter talking. He's talking to Ananias and Sapphira. And you guys are familiar with the story, but the idea is that Peter refers to um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira's uh, deceptive actions as lying not to man but to God. We can see that right there at the very end of Acts chapter 5, verse 4. You have not lied to man but to God. Now, that is his conclusion to the situation. But prior to that, prior to that, the very the verse just in front of that, in verse 3, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so, in parallel fashion, lying to the Holy Spirit is equated with lying to God, which tells us that if lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God, then the Holy Spirit must be God. Now, in all fairness, the fringe groups out there, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses that I'm fond of picking on, let me just pull up their version of the Bible, what they have to say is that, oops, I don't want to go there yet. There we go. Um, what they have to say is that, and if you look at verse 3 of their ver version, J Jehovah's Witnesses, JW.org says, but Peter said to Ananias, sorry about that, but Peter said to, uh, let me try that one more time. 
There we go. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan emboldened you to lie to the... And we notice they got Holy Spirit in lowercase and secretly hold back some of the price of the field. And then in verse 4, they say, as long as it remained with you, it did not remain yours. And after it was sold, was it not yours to control? Why have you thought up such a deed as in your heart? Look at their look at how they translate it. You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, they are saying that the Holy Spirit is 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 related to God, but by putting the Holy Spirit in lowercase, what they're doing is, and then we have to jump back over to regular versions to see this. What they're saying is that if you scroll down, and in all fairness, if you scroll down to verse um, nine, which is another summary to the uh, 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 the uh, the count here, Peter says, "How is it that you have agreed together to test who?" The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you off. So notice, Peter says in verse 9 that you're testing the Spirit of the Lord. So in all fairness to what the JWs are trying to emphasize, they're trying to say, and we can see this in their commentary, which I'll, I'll, I'll pull up for you. They say, let me just click on C so we can see it here. Um, Acts 5.9 that you can see in their little commentary on the side here. The Spirit of Jehovah, the expression the Spirit of Jehovah in verse 9, or Jehovah's Spirit, occurs several times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Some examples are found, and they give you a lot of Old Testament expressions, uh, uh, um, uh, locations. What they're basically trying to say is that the Holy Spirit mentioned in this passage is simply the Spirit of the Lord, meaning it's God's spirit, not necessarily a separate person. Thus, they retain their perspective that the Holy Spirit is not a separate person of the Trinity with full deity. He's simply this impersonal force that God utilizes to accomplish his will and purposes among men and in the earth. So it's God's spirit that's that 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 uh, um, Ananias and Sophia are lying to. So much like Ariel's spirit, you know, is not a separate being and person that's distinct from me. It's actually the spirit that resides within me. Therefore, it's my spirit. There's, therefore, to lie to me is to lie to my spirit. It's not necessarily two separate persons as if you're lying to me and lying to my wife, right? Ariel's wife and Ariel's spirit are two separate kinds of, of differences when we're talking about, you know, possessive noun. Ariel's wife is a separate person, but Ariel's spirit is not a separate person. So the Jehovah's Witnesses theology is that God's spirit is not the separate person. And I can understand, again, uh, where they get this because in verse 9, um, Peter says, you, you're trying to test the spirit of God. He doesn't say you're trying to test the Holy Spirit. All right, so I'll give them that. I'll concede with that also in the Greek, and I'm trying to go somewhat quickly through this. Also, if we were to look at the Greek of Acts chapter 5, and work our way down through some of these, uh, the personal pronouns where, where we're talking about uh, God's spirit and you've lied to him and uh, things like that. Um, I don't know if it's in this passage, but it's definitely another passage that we can look at later on. The Greek personal pronoun, um, especially when we're talking about uh, first and second person, doesn't contain the, the, the way for us to identify gender. Greek uh, nouns have gender. Right, and that's just the word that's gender. It doesn't necessarily mean that the thing that the word is attached to is a gender itself. Such as, like, you know, a table might have a gender as feminine, but that's a grammatical uh, 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 tag. That's not necessarily to say that tables are females. Um, the word spirit in the Greek, what I'm trying to talk about, like you can see right here, pneuma, is actually the gender of neuter. 
It's a neuter gender. So, so um, Greek has masculine, feminine, and neuter. Even Hebrew doesn't even have neuter, but but Greek does. And so without getting ultra-technical, what I'm simply trying to say is that when we're talking about different words in Greek, we can see that there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. And this helps us to understand whether or not we're going to call this thing an it or a he or she or something like that. And so, um, you know, the spirit, the word spirit in Greek is simply the neuter gender. So any pronouns that get attached to that um, can either be he from the antecedent, but technically they can also be it from the antecedent because spirit itself is a neuter gendered noun. So what am I trying to say without getting too technical? We could say that using just the grammar, the spirit is an it. And thus, if a translation has it, you know, it was it it was poured out or it shall be you know xyz or whatever well then if that's simply the grammar talking that's not necessarily translation trying to get into the way so we can't be ex exceptionally harsh on the jehovah's witnesses for what they're trying to manipulate here what they're trying to do what i say that is that the better way to see through the error of their theology is to understand that in verse uh, uh, three and four, Peter says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit. Do you lie to impersonal objects? You know, I'm going to tell my 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 MacBook Pro that I'm looking at right now. I'm going to tell my MacBook Pro. Guess what, MacBook Pro? Next week, I'm going to upgrade your memory. I'm going to bump you your memory up. I'm going to double your memory. Wouldn't that be nice? And my MacBook Pro gets warm and fuzzy feelings. So, question: Next week, I don't actually upgrade my MacBook Pro's memory. Question, did I lie to my MacBook Pro? Can you lie to an inanimate object? Does it understand feelings like that? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Of course you can't lie to inanimate objects, right? I can't lie to my MacBook Pro. I'm really lying to myself. I'm, but I can't deceive a computer. It's an inanimate object. So if the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, you know, uh, uh, like a field of energy or something to that, like that you can channel or like electricity, like Jehovah's Witnesses and other fringe uh, Christian groups like Mormons teach, then how could Peter say that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit? Forget the fact that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God or is a separate person. The real question is, how can you lie to an impersonal force? That, I think, is the error in their theology. And so that's going to go a long way toward, towards helping us make the decisions as to what these passages talk about. In closing, let me just take a few more minutes I've got lots of passages. I may spill this over into next week as a conclusion because I've got lots of resources um, that I pulled together um, this week as I was studying this particular topic. And you can see some of these um, resources uh, on my screen as I'm flashing by them. Um, but what I wanted to do was um, look at uh, just briefly, let me see, is it right here in Corinthians? Is it in Hebrews? Is it in Deuteronomy? I think I'm not going to rush this. I think I'll call it. Uh, we'll call this part of the commentary quits for now. Um, we'll stop at Acts uh, five next week. We'll spill this over just a little bit, and I'll show you some other passages, uh, a few out of John, a few out of First uh, Corinthians, Hebrews, Deuteronomy, where this idea of again we're going to use a little bit of help from the Greek grammar. This idea of of masculine and feminine and, and neuter, how it influences the way uh, translators translate words as particularly when we come to spirit and pronouns should we translate uh, pronouns that are attached to the spirit as he 
like John does in John 15, where Yeshua is talking about sending the comforter. He's going to remind you of all truth and things like that. Um, the paraclete, right? You guys know about this, the comforter, the, uh, that, that the Father is going to send on my behalf. Uh, he is going to, and we use this personal pronoun or demonstrative pronoun, he. But in the Greek, since the antecedent noun, which is the spirit, is neuter gender, then technically we could also say it. Right, we could translate it as it, but that it feels like it rubs us the wrong way as 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 uh, Trinitarians when we say it will lead you into all truth. Right, but even the KJV is guilty of saying it when it comes to the spirit and things like that. Um, so the point is, we're going to look at that next week. Um, is it wrong to translate uh, such personal pronouns or demonstrative pronouns um, uh, in the Greek as it, you know, that, uh, those, uh, things like that? Um, we'll 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 uh, uh, take a look at that next week. But for now, let's close in prayer. Um, sorry, I went just a little bit over, but uh, um, sometimes it's necessary. Let's close in prayer. And those of you with me in the live class, uh, stick around. We can talk about this uh, in the after chat if you'd like to discuss this or any other topic. Okay. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for uh, being with us tonight. I thank you for your continued protection for us as communities, as people who of, of faith are placing our hope and trust in you to keep us well and out of harm's way when it comes to this particular worldwide plague that has befallen us. Lord, we have got to trust in you to to raise us up and to strengthen us as people, as people who have a voice, as people who have a um, a, a trust and demonstrate this trust uh, as we lead our lives, um, uh, interacting with those around us who don't have that trust. We've got to be able to um, convey this sense that uh, we're a bit different. And the reason why we're different is because we serve a God who is, is in control. He's not out of control. He, he's not wringing his hand saying, what do I do? What do I do? You know, what about what about this virus? Why well, I didn't think about that. What's, what, what am I going to do? God, God is not that way. He is in control. He knows the world that he created. And he knows those who are his. And he protects those who are his. And even if some Christians do get sick, it doesn't mean that God's not protecting them. It simply means that God's got other plans for that particular person. So help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to continue to trust in you. Help us to continue to voice uh, our faith in you and to demonstrate to those around us that we have a faith in God and that, that they too can have this faith in Messiah and that they can live their lives so that they don't have to be continually um, worrying about what's going to happen, where food's going to come from, how they're going to pay the bills, um, whether or not they're going to contract this virus. God can give you this sense of assurance, this, this, as the Bible calls it, this peace that surpasses all understanding. It just washes over us, Lord, even though the world around us is losing control, losing their minds, going crazy, spinning out of control, stressing and taking drugs and medicating with alcohol and doing whatever it takes to, to try and comfort their minds Lord, we're not that way. We don't have to be that way. We've got the, the peace of the Ruach Kodesh inside of us, the peace of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this peace. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to share this with those around us. Be with us tonight. Continue to, to uh, carry us along. Help us through this Thanksgiving period. Lord, comfort us for not being able to meet with our families, if that's the decisions that we're making. And if we do decide to travel, Lord, continue to protect us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? 
walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>